I love the Olympics. Um, absolutely love it. I've been taking a real interest in the Olympics since 1972. I won't ask how many were alive. Peter and Lisa and I were alive in 72. Um, and uh, uh, I had this big chart um, uh, which I put on the wall where I could fill in all the, all the names of the gold, silver and uh, bronze medal winners. I remember Mark Spitz. Remember Mark Spitz? Olga Corbett was an absolute hero of mine and Judy's. Um, actually, one thing that really stuck in my imagination was something that had happened four years before that. Bob Beeman did the most enormous long jump. It was 21 inches more than the previous world record. Its total was 29 feet, two and a quarter, which I did just pace out. That's why you saw me doing something weird. That is, if he took off here, he would land just before that panel there. But here's something even more amazing, the triple jump. I still remember this, it was 57 feet, I remember working it out. Triple jump, if a triple jumper arrived at that door, his triple jump, he would end um, just short of the door into the back, um, back hole. Three hop, step, jump, that far. It's astonishing what those people do. Um, uh, Bob Beeman's world record was beaten with one jump by Mike Powell in 1991, but that's the only jump that has ever gone longer than Bob Beeman's jump of 29 feet. So his is not the world record, but it's still the Olympic record since 1968. And the thing that I loved about the Olympics, particularly as a 10-year-old, was just thinking, how amazing what people can do. Um, some of it, of course, is natural gift. People are just, just you know, extraordinarily gifted. But one of the things I've noticed over the years is that it, 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 for great performers, it is a combination of gift and endurance and hard work. Um, I remember hearing Steve Redgrave, you know, you know him now. Um, he... Um, was relatively ordinary all-round sportsman, um, but was determined that he wanted to compete at the highest level in something. And he just asked his PE teacher, "What what could I do that I could take to the highest level?" And the PE teacher said, well, "Why don't you try rowing?" A quite tall, strong chap. How many Olympic golds did he get? I can't uh, I can't remember. Um, one philosopher. Friedrich Nietzsche, who's not my favourite in other ways, um, uh, described uh, a good life as a long obedience in the same direction. It is amazing what can be achieved by a long obedience in the same direction. And... um, My question to you this evening, which is actually John's question to us as he brings his gospel to an end, to its end, is what are you going to do with your life? Is your life going to be a long obedience in the same direction? Who knows what it could achieve if it is? 
or is it going to be in fact something that just meanders around and doesn't do much see um, uh, that is the underlying question that is throughout John chapter 21 Um, it serves in some ways as a little epilogue the end of John 20 could have been the end of the gospel very easily verse 30 of John 20 Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book but these are recorded that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah the Son of God and that believing you may have life in his name That seems to bring it to a completion in many ways. He's been telling us Jesus is the Son of God. Indeed, God the Son. God made man. In the beginning he began was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. And then John John reinforces that again and again by recording. Do you remember seven I am's? Seven times Jesus just says I am without anything that follows it. Just I am. It echoes actually the way that God spoke about himself in the Old Testament, especially in the prophecy of Isaiah. So Jesus taking that on his lips is effectively saying he's God. But he uh, seven more times said I am with a definite article after. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth and the life. I am the vine. Seven times. So not only is he God, but he brings life in all this rich, diverse ways. He's, he's food like bread. He's light. He's, he's a good shepherd. He's a gate and, uh, uh, and so on. Seven I am. Seven I am verse. Seven signs as well throughout the gospel. Do you remember those? The, the miracles that began with the wedding of Cana, the first sign, um, says John, and then leads through six more until finally the seventh sign is Jesus' death and resurrection itself. Um, that's the, the signs that John is talking about in John chapter 20, verse 30. And it's, it's all come to uh, completion by the end of John 20. There are a few threes as well, remember, in John's Gospel. He, um, uh, he used the phrase to describe his, his death on the cross and his resurrection. Um, he described it in anticipation as being lifted up. And he tells us that three times. The first time in John 3, he says his, his, his lifting up, his death and resurrection is going to be the source of forgiveness and life. The Son of Man, John 3.14, must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. The second time, his death on the cross, in particular, um, is, is going to reveal paradoxically that he is God. Do you remember that? When you have lifted up the Son of Man, you will know that I am. That's the central one of those seven I ams, and it's the central one of three lifted ups. When he's lifted up on the cross, somehow that displays the glory of God, displays Jesus as God, the God who loves us so much that he would die on the cross 
for our sins. And then the third time that Jesus uh, describes himself as being lifted up, his, he says that his death on the cross and his resurrection will be the rallying point for people from every tribe and nation. John 12:32. I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So John has been building by these strategic repetitions his message, seven I am, seven I am thus, seven signs, three lifted ups, not to mention several others like um, believe and life come together seven times. Eternal life is mentioned 14 times. The word testimony, though, interestingly, so far has only got 13 references. The 14th is, it, is John 21, verse 24. Now, this little addendum at the edge, at the end of John's Gospel, is important. The story's nearly over, but the testimony is not complete. Indeed, actually, there have only been two resurrection appearances so far. And that is quite significant because in John chapter 19 there were three little stories that told us that Jesus was really dead. He cried, his last cry, it is finished. The soldier piercing his side and his burial. Three little testimonies. Jesus was really dead. Three anticipations of his death and resurrection being lifted up. Three testimonies that he's dead. And so far only two that he's, he's alive again. The first one, Mary meeting um, uh, Jesus in, uh, at the beginning of John chapter 20. The, fir- the second one, uh, Jesus appearing to Thomas at the end of chapter 20. But John very carefully describes the third appearance of Jesus at the first half of 21 as his third, the third time Jesus had appeared. Did you see that in verse 14? This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Little epilogue in some ways, absolutely vital completion of the testimony and completion of the evidence that Jesus is risen from the dead. Mary saw it, Thomas saw it, and now we'll see it again. Every one of those resurrection events included a commission. Mary was told, go to my brothers and tell them. The disciples were were told, just before Thomas met uh, Uh, met Jesus, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. But this third resurrection appearance and uh, the events surrounding it are all about commission. All about sending the disciples out. All about this question. What are you going to do with your life now? As the story about Jesus comes to its completion. What are you going to do? And John is going to show us three things. He's going to show us in verses 1 to 14 a promise. In verses 15 to 18, I think it is. 15 to 17, a commission. Verses 18 and on towards the end, a warning. That's what I want us to see there.
under this big question. What are you going to do with your life? Well, the uh, chapter starts with them not doing a lot, doesn't it? Verse 2, Simon Peter, um, uh, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, the two other disciples, were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. They said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat that night, but they caught nothing. They're not necessarily sinning, but they, they've just got nothing to do. So they go back to the normal uh, activities of their life. In the first light of dawn, perhaps you can imagine a few wisps of mist floating over the, uh, uh, the, the lake. Uh, a bloke appears in the distance on the, on the shore. They can't quite see him. Verse 4, early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not recognize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Peter realizes who it is, and perhaps... Though John hasn't recorded it, because right at the beginning, remember, of uh, their time with Jesus, he had um, uh, enabled them to have a miraculous catch of fish. But we we don't know what it is, but he recognises them. Verse 7, it's the Lord, says Peter. And as soon as he heard that... um, Sorry, John recognises who it is. He said to Peter, it is the Lord. And as soon as Peter heard him say it, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around them, for he'd taken it off, jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred metres. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. Here's here's a a third resurrection appearance and and it captures so much of the excitement of what the resurrection meant to the early disciples. Peter can't wait to meet Jesus. He swims ashore. Here's a little beautiful little picture of resurrection life. Yes, resurrection life is a beach. It is a barbecue. Don't let the, the killjoys tell you that um, uh, uh, Christianity is all about denying things and not enjoying things and it's all pie in the sky when you die. No, John has been saying it's absolutely solid, absolutely real and it is great. You had a barbecue at lunch, didn't you? Imagine that. Um, by the Sea of Galilee and Jesus saying, this is just a foretaste of what you will enjoy with me in eternity in the my new creation. That's what Jesus is promising them there. But of course the thing that everyone um, interests everyone is this number of fish. Did you see verse 11? 153 fish. And it's, it's not only tantalising when you see a number like that, but when you realise how interested John is in numbers, as we've tried to say, makes makes you doubly um, feel like I really, really need to try and understand what that number is. Um, Jerome, the 4th century commentator, um, 
tells of how one of the early natural history books recorded that there were 153 species of fish. Maybe, he suggested, it's, it's symbolic then of all the species of people translated into fish, or people from every tribe and nation. Unfortunately, we have that ancient naturalist's book, and it doesn't have 153 species in it. So, uh, Jerome probably made a mistake. Augustine, smart mathematician that he was, recognised that 153 is the triangular number of 17. 17 plus 16 plus 15. Charlie's getting excited here. Um, And... uh, Uh, suggested, well, that's 10 plus 7, and there may be all sorts of deep symbolism, but it starts to become pretty obscure, doesn't it? Other people have gone into what's called um, gematria, that is, that is, that in the ancient world, they often ascribed the number to particular words, the, the corresponding place in the alphabet gave them a number for a letter, and then they would add them up for a, for a word. And that does occur sometimes in the Bible. So, so for instance, the, gene, the um, introduction to Matthew's Gospel with the genealogy has 14 generations and 14 generations and 14 generations, which seem to revolve especially around David. And interestingly, the numerical value of the name David is 14. And it does look like Matthew had some interest in that, and, uh, and so on. But 153, unfortunately, there are a zillion little sentences that you could make up um, that would have a number 153. And so we're left confused. Maybe that just was the number, and John records it because they were accustomed to counting their fish. Maybe if John's interested in numbers, it's actually of significance to John, even that it's a confusing number, a number that doesn't seem to make any sense, as if, as if, he's, almost, uh, as if he's almost saying, you know, that, that, that there's mysteries about this, this, that what Jesus achieves through us. We can't pin it down. I don't know. But it's a big number, and it's clearly symbolic for the fruitfulness of a life spent listening to Jesus. Cast you now on the other side. Who knows why? They're fishermen. He's some weird bloke on the shore. Cast your net on the other side. And when they do, they have an enormous catch of fish. In fact, John carefully records that it was a catch of fish that didn't break the nets, that, that, that it brought, they were able to bring in this that enormous number of fish. Who knows how fruitful your life could be if you have learned to obey Jesus. If you have set out on that long obedience in the same direction. If you buy long training such as Olympic athletes go through. Have just day after day after day learned to obey Jesus. It's not usually the big grand sort of splash of obedience that makes the difference. 
Those, those moments come to people a few times. You know, I must be obedient and give up that relationship, though I love it, I know it's not going to work. I, I must be obedient and go to a new country as a, as a, as a missionary or, or whatever. There are a few, few, you know, few of those big decisions sometimes that come to people in their lives, but what creates the fruit is the multiple obedient acts following Jesus. It was the end of a long day. They were nearly home. It seemed just one too many things to do. But hey, they did it. And they got an enormous catch. What are you going to do with your life? Why not start by simply obeying the voice of Jesus? The next thing that Jesus does is really special. He gives a commission to Peter in verses 15 to 17. But before he does that, he gives Peter a test. Verse 15, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Jesus is provoking John here. Because, because you see, Jesus, and we know, that John, uh, uh, sorry, Peter, was always making great protestations of his faith. Even if all follow, follow, uh, fall away from following you, I will never desert you, says Peter. So, so Jesus goes up to him and he says, how are you on this discipleship thing now, Peter? You, do you love me more than these other people? Because, of course, Peter had failed. Peter had deserted Jesus even though he protested he never would. Have you learned to love me more than these now? Says Jesus. And Peter's answer is really, really important. Yes, Lord, he says, you know that I love you. First of all, notice he's taken out the more than these. He would have loved to have included that in his earlier life. It's gone. No, no, he, he, he's, he's not now going to compare himself with other people. He is simply going to confess, I do love you, Jesus. But there's something more important than it, about that, about it than that. He says, yes, you know, Jesus. Before, you see... It was all bluster. It was all trying to put on a show, trying to demonstrate to Jesus. And uh, Jesus had had to warn him that he could see into his heart and he knew that he would, do, he would betray him. And now all of that bluster, everything has gone. And he's, just, he's not saying, yes, I love you. He's saying, you can see into my heart. 
Uh, and you can see, you've seen my failures. You can see my weaknesses. You can see my wavering heart. You can see my lack of faith. You can see my cowardice. And you can see that probably I'm going to do the same things I did before again. I know you can see all of that, Jesus, but I know also that you can see in my heart that there is love for you. Imperfect, poor, but it's there. And that's a really, really important place for Peter to have got to. Just to hammer it home, Jesus reinforces it twice more. Do you see that? Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And and Peter answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then verse 17, the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Remember, three times Peter denied Jesus. So Jesus gives him three times, three opportunities to confess his, his, his faith and his, his love for him. But remember, three times we had witnessed Jesus was dead. John has done lots of threes. And that was so that we know that Jesus was dead. Three times we have seen Jesus risen from the dead. That was so that we know that Jesus is risen from the dead. And now three times Jesus provokes Peter to confess his love for him. Not so that we know. But actually because Jesus does know it. It's a reversal. See, he applies exactly that test to you. And of course, it's possible that we will fail the test. It's possible that we've deceived everyone else that we know and that the, that, that the bluster so far that I love the Lord Jesus is only bluster and Jesus sees into our hearts and he sees there's nothing there. That is possible amongst us here tonight. But it is more likely, I think, that you, like Peter, have had an awful lot of things knocked away from you over time and will have more in the future. But when you're honest before the Lord Jesus who sees into deep into your heart you know you love that Lord Jesus failure though you are and that's your commission that's enough for you to be commissioned to serve Jesus each time Peter says you know I love you Jesus responds in roughly the same way. Verse 15, feed my lambs. Verse 16, take care of my sheep. Verse 17, feed my sheep. In one sense, that commission is unique to Peter. He was commissioned to be the chief of the apostles to look after God's church it's also for anyone who's involved in gospel ministry has a particular resonance 
because God calls people to care for and feed his sheep with the word of God. But it applies to all of us in a broader way. Every single one of us. You are commissioned to serve Jesus and follow him amongst his people and in the world. Because he's placed love in your heart. Which he sees and you cannot deny. And so you're sent out to serve him. I don't don't know what that means for you. But what I do want to say to you is past failure is not a disqualification from serving the living Lord Jesus. If it was, Peter would have been thrown on the rubbish heap. As it is, he is restored. Because Jesus has done something indelible in his heart. And I want you to know as well that it's the most extraordinary dignity that we are given. I am the bread of life, says Jesus. Peter, feed my sheep. I am the good shepherd, says Jesus. Peter, take care of my lambs. You are being commissioned to be Jesus' arms and legs and hands and mouth in this world. You know I love you. Yes, so go and do my work. And then a third thing, a really, really important thing that Jesus says to Peter. It's a warning, verses 18 to 23. A warning, first of all, that that commission may not be easy. Verse 18, very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you are old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death which Peter, by which Peter would glorify God, and then he said, follow me. When you're young, you think the world is your oyster. It won't be long before you have incredible freedom, and these people are already enjoying it. And it is wonderful. And you think you can go and do anything you like. But as life goes on, experience and age starts to close down the options. And we realise that we're not in control of our life. And we may get asked to walk paths that we do not enjoy. John is warning Peter here, when you're old... You will be martyred. And you're not going to enjoy that, Peter. Someone else he may say, as you get older, you will have a difficult and debilitating illness. And you're not going to enjoy that. You may not live as long as you would like to. And you're not going to enjoy that. You may not have the job that you exactly want. And you may not enjoy that. You may marry someone who looks like the best person in the universe to marry on your wedding day but after a few years you realise they've got feet of clay like everybody else and it's hard work marriage and you may not enjoy some bits of it 
but this is the way by which you will glorify me. And then here's, here's, here's the most important warning, I think. Peter turned, verse 20, and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? It's John. We've seen that before. When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. In other words, the first thing we say is, is what about so-and-so? You know, I'm going to have a hard life. Well, I hope so-and-so is going to have an equally hard life, Lord, or it's not fair. What about that person who's, who's, who's become uh, uh, rich and famous and whilst I'm still doing an ordinary mundane job and will never get a recognition? What, 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 where's the fairness in that? And Jesus says um, very clearly to Peter, it is none of your business. Peter, if I want John to have a nice easy life and die happily in his bed surrounded by an enormous throng of applauding disciples that's my decision it is not yours incidentally notice even after Jesus had said this people became obsessed by wondering about what, what, what would happen to John and whether Jesus would, uh, uh, would, would therefore actually do that in John's life and they completely missed the point None of your business. That's what Jesus is saying. It is none of your business. It is not any one of our businesses here what, it, what God is going to do with the next person. It is not our business. Preachers, pastors always compare themselves with the, the other ones, especially ones who are perceived to be better than them. And they say, what about, what, why can't I be like them, Lord? It is none of my business. And what God does with anybody else for you is the same. What you must do, says Jesus, is you follow me. Different Olympians, they excel in different sports, and that's great. And the high jumpers simply couldn't do the sumo wrestling, I promise you. They each have a calling. And you have a unique calling. And there is no promise that you will, will see the massive fruitfulness of following that calling. But I, I absolutely assure you that there is. Because God doesn't actually create his fruit through individuals so much as the body of Christ in general. And as the body of Christ, actually not just locally, but nationally, globally, and down through the ages, um, has millions upon millions of people who are looking to Jesus and 
doing what Jesus has called them, God's kingdom spreads until there are innumerable people from every tribe and nation worshipping him in heaven. And every single one of those who has followed Jesus and taken that call and not worried about how he's using them, treating the next person, every single one of those stands at the end in glory in a great clamour of praise and thanksgiving I've been involved in this far more than 153 fish innumerable people from every tribe and nation and we each play our part what about him? what a stupid question to ask says Jesus is what about me? What are you going to do with your life? I do not know the answer to that. But Jesus does. It's absolutely clear he does. And it is for you to follow him obediently. So what are you going to do with your life? question not to get the most glory to me but to follow the calling Jesus has given for your life it will be fruitful your commission depends not on your protestations of greatness but on the basis that when Jesus looks into your life though he sees all the imperfect things he sees love for him there your commission may not be entirely enjoyed by you but if you follow Jesus you will not be disappointed John's shown us an amazing panorama of who Jesus is and he leaves that question with us what are you going to do with your life